This is the Legal Innovators Interview Series, featuring in-house counsel at the forefront of change in their profession, industry, and company. Brought to you by Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney and InsideCounsel.com. Here's your host, Craig Mills. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Legal Innovators Interview Series. I'm your host, Craig Mills, an executive shareholder at Buchanan Ingersoll and Rooney. Thanks for joining us again as we speak with yet another industry leader who is changing the face of our profession. Now, on this episode, we have a guest who's a bit different from those that we typically speak to. Instead of talking to a general counsel or a chief legal officer today, we'll be talking to David Kirstein, investment manager and legal counsel at Bentham IMF. Bentham is a litigation finance company that provides funding to plaintiffs and law firms for large legal disputes. Bentham is the U.S. arm of IMF Bentham Limited, which is one of the oldest and most experienced commercial litigation funders in the world. Now, the reason I'm happy to have David with us today is because over the past few years, I've gotten a lot of questions from the GCs that I work with about how exactly litigation finance companies work and whether there's something that large companies and corporations should be afraid of or perhaps embrace as an opportunity. From what I've seen and heard, and frankly, from my own perspective, there's a lot of confusion and doubt out there about what litigation funding firms do and their impact on the legal industry and the legal system. Now, fortunately for all of us, David is here to shed light on the subject and to perhaps dispel some of the myths and misperceptions about his industry. With more than 15 years of experience in handling complex commercial disputes before he joined Bentham IMF, David knows litigation funding from both sides of the table. So, David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Craig. So let me begin by just asking you to explain litigation funding to us. when, When it comes to that, most people including a lot of us lawyers, only think of consumer funding. So can you start by explaining for us the difference between consumer and commercial litigation funding and how your company, Bentham, operates in those spheres? Sure, and that, that, is, that is a common uh, conflation. There, re- there really are two different industries or two different sides of the funding industry. There are commercial litigation funders, uh, and there are consumer litigation funders. Bentham, the company that I've been at now for, for nearly four years, is one of the commercial litigation funders, and, and we actually sort of pioneered the industry about 20 years ago in Australia. Um, commercial litigation funders uh, mainly fund high-value, complex commercial litigations, usually where the minimum threshold for a commitment of funding is a million dollars or north of that, and where the damages in the case or the value of the cases are worth $10 million or greater. Uh, a key characteristic of the funding is it's always non-recourse, meaning the funder only gets a return if the case is successful in settling or returning a judgment that's collected. Um, it, it, it involves sophisticated parties, sophisticated counsel, and it really uh, is used in a variety or a range of commercial litigation subject matters running from breach of contract to patent matters and really any kind of general complex commercial litigation that you can think of. It's sometimes easier to say what commercial funders don't fund than what we do, and and usually those are the things that the consumer funders fund. So uh, commercial funders don't ordinarily fund personal injury or medical malpractice cases, um, and we often uh, won't fund class actions on a single case basis. Consumer funders uh, are usually involved in funding smaller dollar value cases with a lot smaller quantum of funding, usually in the single-digit thousands of dollars or maybe tens of thousands of dollars, and it generally involves less sophisticated parties, less sophisticated counsel. The, w- the one gray area is sort of mass torts. There, most commercial funders don't fund into that space. 
some do on occasion. We, we generally don't do that at Bentham. There's a lot of uh, potential for, um, for for wrongdoing sometimes in those large-scale cases, and we don't want to get any anywhere close to the line of, of getting involved in something with reputational risk. And so we generally shy away from those sorts of cases. Interesting. I did not know that commercial litigation uh, funding uh, came from Australia. I mean, I, I always think of things coming out of Australia that can kill you, like sharks and crocodiles and Tasmanian devils and things like that. <laughs> that's right. And maybe that's and, why and kangaroos I, can actually be dangerous too. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I was going to say maybe that's why a lot of people are afraid of it. But but what are some of the common misperceptions about litigation funding, and and what are why are they misperceptions in, in your view? So I think the most common misperception. Um, is, is that litigation funding encourages frivolous litigation. And really, if you, if you step back and think about the business model for a moment that I just mentioned before, where all of our investments are non-recourse, that argument is actually really much more of a frivolous argument itself. Commercial litigation funders don't have any incentive to invest in frivolous litigations because they won't get any return if they do so. Uh, and so we at, at Bentham, our standard is we're looking for cases that are highly likely to be successful, and we try to stay as far, uh, you know, from the line of a, of a case that might lose as possible. Now, do we get it wrong on occasion? Sure. We, we've been fortunate; we've been able to succeed and return funds in about 90% of the cases that we invest in, but really have no incentive to invest in frivolous cases. I think another couple of misperceptions are that uh, litigation funders somehow interfere in the lawyer-client relationship. Uh, or that they dictate settlement. And that, too, is generally false. Most uh, reputable commercial funders uh, don't take any control over the litigation. We specifically disclaim any control over litigation in our funding agreements. Um, and and another, another misperception is that when there's a funder involved in a case, it, it's going to make it harder to reach a settlement in that case. Here again, we, we really prefer to invest in cases that are well-postured for settlement because it's a, a more certain outcome for us. Uh, than, than having a case go all the way to, to trial and perhaps appeal and collection. And so we really are looking to invest in cases that are likely to settle. And then finally, the last one that I would mention I think is, is pertinent to today is that litigation funding is really only relevant for, for small claimants or individuals. And that and that's really also not true. We are, especially as the industry has matured, we are seeing more and more approaches from companies of, of all sizes and, and companies that are larger and larger uh, all the time. Thank you. That Those things make a lot of common sense if you stop and think about them, which I'm actually stopping and thinking about them for the first time. Um, I, I want to go back over a couple of things you mentioned, though. And the first was this 90% return rate. I believe you said that in 90% of the cases in which you invest, you have been able to return funds. What What exactly do you mean by return funds to who besides Obviously, the, the, the plaintiffs would get some, but, but mean actually have a positive outcome for the company itself? Correct. And we've actually been really focused on, on fairness here at Bentham, too. We really try to invest in cases where the most likely outcome is that the claimant's going to be getting at least 50% or more of the share of return. We think as a matter of fairness, it's their claim. They should be getting the lion's share of the proceeds and also really for the long-term sustainability of the industry, it's important that they get the lion's share of the proceeds. And so it's not a guarantee, but we try to structure our deals so that that is the most likely outcome. And over the life of our firm, uh, we've been able to return about 62% of the funds that we've collected to the claimants in the litigations, with the, le- with the rest being split between Bentham and the lawyers that are litigating those cases if, if the lawyers are on risk. That is impressive. I'm, I'm sure that my clients would be glad if I could promise in 90% of the time that they would get back more than they paid me, but I haven't been able to break the high 80s. 
Well, you've explained to us why a general counsel of a corporation shouldn't be afraid of commercial litigation funders as fomenting frivolous litigation, but but why should they actually be glad to see you coming in, from your point of view? What opportunities does Bentham offer to me if I am the general counsel of a consumer products company or a manufacturing concern? Well, well big picture, litigation funding is really just a tool like any other finance tool that a corporation uh, should have or consider having in its toolbox uh, that it can use to finance big-ticket expensive litigation like it finances other capital-intensive projects. Now, to back up and just describe a little bit more about how our capital is used, our capital is most often used to pay for some or all of the legal fees or out-of-pocket expenses of litigation. Um, it's also our capital can also be used for to provide working or operating capital uh, to a company, something a, a law firm can't do. Your firm can offer a contingency or even cover the costs uh, to a client, but you can't provide capital directly to the firm. That's something a litigation funder can do, collateralized against the litigation assets. So it's a way for companies to realize more value from their litigation assets. As, an, as sort of an example or hypothetical that we hear a lot of from the general counsels and CFOs that, that we've been talking to recently, many of them tell us sort of a similar version of this dilemma. Their, their company has been wronged, perhaps, by a major supplier or a vendor. They've lost many tens of millions or maybe even $100 million as a result of the wrongdoing. And their outside counsel tells them that they have a great case, but it's going to cost 5 to $10 million to litigate it. It might take three to five years. And you know, while they're telling them they have a great chance to win, no one can guarantee anything, and litigation is inherently uncertain. And and so the dilemma is, do they spend the internal capital to litigate that claim and recognize that asset or maybe vindicate their rights in the market? And oftentimes, they don't. And, and they don't because of the following problems. Litigation budgets are necessarily tight and, 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 and obviously finite, and they're often built around defense side matters and matters that must be defended or utilized for other non-litigation corporate legal matters, perhaps. And then there's also accounting issues. The way the accounting rules are set up, if, if a company spends a lot of money on legal fees and out-of-pocket costs in a litigation, it has to expense those fees and, and, and show them on their financial statements. And that can really serve to reduce operating profits and perhaps have a negative impact on a company or a group in the company's P&L. Uh, likewise, the company can't often recognize a litigation recovery, if it, if it has one, as ordinary operating income, because it's, it's not ordinary, and therefore it can't balance out the expense that it had to record with the, with the revenue that it might recognize from the case. So it sort of creates this lose-lose option for the company and results in a lot of companies leaving meritorious and valuable cases on the table. Companies also aren't really in the business of valuing litigation, uh, and sometimes it's hard for them to figure out how valuable their plaintiff-side litigation might be. And finally, every dollar that the company ends up spending on that uh, plaintiff-side litigation is a dollar that it perhaps could have used to, to make its widgets. Um, and so for those reasons, you know, we, we see that a lot of companies and that we hear that a lot of companies end up leaving meritorious cases on the table or have to stop in the middle of a litigation that might be going well on the merits because maybe the, the budget's been exhausted. And there's some statistics from some uh, outside counsel surveys that we've seen that nearly a third of, of counsel have reported not bringing a case that was valuable or quitting in the middle of a case, or maybe a quarter have reported quitting in the middle of a case 
that was going well simply because of, of capital constraints. And so funding can be a solution to all those problems that I mentioned before. And then finally, litigation funders are, are expert in, in valuing claims and can really help a company figure out which of its claims might be, lit- might be worth litigating and, and can also help manage the claim with alongside uh, the, the in-house counsel and to get the, the case to its best outcome. Hmm. Once again, that, that, that makes everything you just said makes complete sense to me, which means it would make complete sense to anyone. And that weird whispering noise you may have heard while you were speaking was me and every other outside litigator, GC and CFO nodding when you were talking about the budgetary restraints, the, the tax slash financial slash political aspects of running up large legal bills uh, in a way that is not tax advantageous even if you win. And that is, that's good information in terms of the very real benefits that something like this could offer in the right case. But there are risks as well. There are, there are wrinkles to this non-traditional arrangement that I want to explore with you as well. Talk to me, David, if you would, about the ethical implications of litigation funding. You've got this, this unique triangle between the client, the counsel, and then you as the litigation funder. What challenges does that arrangement present in terms of ethics and confidentiality, and how do you handle those? There are, there are really, really many interesting ethical issues that we could probably spend the whole, the whole podcast on. But, but in short, a few years ago, an ABA working group studied the industry, the funding industry, when it was even more nascent than it is now, and came out with a, a 2020 report in, in, in 2012 on a white paper, a white paper that basically found that when done correctly, you know, funding does, does not present any, any unique ethical issues, but that lawyers should just be generally aware of their general um, fiduciary duties and, and ethical issues that they have to be careful about. Things that, that we're always careful and, and try to be aware of include rules about champerty and maintenance in various jurisdictions, attorney-client privilege, and, and lawyer ethical duties of confidentiality. Um, champerty and maintenance, uh, we're basically careful about what jurisdictions we fund into. There's about 30 jurisdictions in this country now where it's okay to have a third party involved in funding. Most of the major commercial centers, uh, it's fine. Uh, but there are some states where it's still uh, questionable or problematic, and so we are careful about that, and lawyers who are advising their clients on third-party funding should be careful about that. Um, at Bentham, it's, it's also really important to us, and I think most reputable funders act this way as well, that we don't take any control over the litigation that we fund. And in fact, Again, we write it into our agreement that we don't take any control. And that's because we don't want to bump into any champerty or maintenance rules or usury restrictions that are sometimes triggered by whether a third party who's funding has taken any control of the litigation. When we actually fund a litigation, the, the only major rights that we have are the right to be paid the return that we contracted for, the right to be kept informed of what's going on in the case on a regular basis, kind of like you would do with an insurer on the defense side. Although we take a lot, we have a lot less involvement than an insurer does who's often sitting at the settlement table. Um, and the right to be kept informed of what's going on in settlement and be allowed to weigh in with our views. But ultimately those decisions get left between the lawyer and the client. What we try to do is structure the arrangement at the outset so that our, our interests are aligned with the lawyer and the client. So that hopefully we won't be getting into disputes if, if we've done, if we structured it pro- properly. It doesn't mean to say that we always agree with everything that the clients and the lawyers do, but, but we intentionally do not take any control over litigation. And then finally, with respect to uh, confidentiality and privilege, with respect to confidentiality, lawyers just have to be careful that whenever they're sharing materials with a funder, that they've gotten their client's permission to share anything that's confidential. Uh, and then with respect to attorney-client privilege, we never 
want to receive any attorney-client privilege material when we're evaluating a case. We don't think we need it in order to do so, and if that were to be shared with us, uh, we, we would return it or destroy it because sharing it with a third party could potentially waive the privilege. So that's something to be very careful about. But it is important for us to see work product as we're as we're considering an investment. And the weight of the law, and really the growing weight of the law, is if the, if you have the right protections in place, such as a robust NDA, um, material that's uh, protected by work product privilege or work product protection. Uh, can be shared with a with an outside third party like a funder. The comments you made about not really even wanting to see attorney-client materials passing back and forth between counsel and the the party plaintiff. How do you keep track of how the case is going if you don't have those conversations? Well, we definitely have conversations, and uh, our, our our funding agreement, if we agree to enter into a transaction, will have some requirements that the lawyers and the clients keep us regularly updated quarterly or when there's material events in a case on what's going on. But but that doesn't mean that we want to or expect to or need to hear privileged uh, information. Uh, if, if an attorney gives us his view of what's going on in the case, that would traditionally be a, a work product type material. Uh, and that is important for us to, to see and hear. Um, but, but we don't ever, ever want to hear uh, the attorney-client okay, discussion. Okay, great. Yeah, that, that is, thank you for that clarification. And another thing you mentioned, David, was, you know, about when commercial litigation funding was, was a rather nascent force in the legal industry. Uh, and I wanted to follow up on that as well. I mean, com- the idea of commercial litigation funding, as you pointed out, has been around for two decades, but it's really only started to take hold in the U.S. over the past five years or so. In your view, what is fueling this growth? I think in, in large part it's due to the continued rising cost and expense and, and length of litigation and, and an increased desire on the part of clients to uh, have their have their lawyers share more risk with them in cases uh, and, and to align interests better and, and firms not being able or willing perhaps to take as much risk as their clients want them to. And so funders have been able to come in and sort of bridge that gap, as I mentioned before. There's also, uh, as you probably have heard, a, a, a bit of a dissatisfaction with the billable hour model that has risen up over the past few years. And again, funding allows um, alternative fee arrangements uh, in, in a way that can be beneficial for both lawyers and clients. Uh, and, and to bridge that gap where firms can't take as much risk as their clients want them to. And, and it's also just a matter of really education of the market and experience as more lawyers and more firms and more clients have started to dip their toe in the water and dabbled in it and had a good experience. Uh, that has led to increased uh, interest in the so Let's suppose then that I am a general counsel or a chief legal officer, one of the growing number of people who sort of are, are embracing this as a possible tool in the toolbox, and I've got a piece of discretionary litigation I think might be a good candidate for litigation funding. At what point should I engage with a company such as Bentham? What questions should I be ready to answer when I have that initial conversation? Really, at any point in the litigation, uh, it it makes sense to engage a funder if if it seems to make sense for the litigation. Uh, At the outset, uh, we can really help with thinking through the best type of claims that can be brought, the best strategy for those claims, and, and who the best counsel might be uh, to bring those claims and what the best arrangement might be to incent that counsel to get the claim into its highest value. We, we often get approached by clients who, who don't have counsel yet and, and seek our advice of, of who might be the best counsel to bring that kind of claim. Um, we can also be helpful in the middle of a case where 
perhaps a case was on a traditional billable hour model and the budget has been blown and you're only partway through discovery and it's going to take several more millions of dollars to litigate the case and the, the, the client is, is tired of the legal spend or has run out of its budget, we can come in at that point. And then we can also come in at the end of a case where perhaps a, a, a claim has been reduced to a judgment uh, and the client doesn't want to wait any longer to recognize value on that claim. We can come in and, and monetize that judgment while it's pending appeal, or we can come in and provide funding to, to for the enforcement efforts if the claim wasn't paid off right away. Well, since this is the Legal Innovators Series, or so we bill ourselves, I have to ask you, what kinds of innovations are either you working on personally in your role as investment manager and legal counsel at Bentham, or are you seeing going on in the litigation funding industry overall? Yep. Well, in some ways, funding large corporations is a, is a relatively recent innovation, something we've been quite focused on lately at Bentham, and I think I think the industry as a whole. Uh, another thing that we, we hear a lot about in the news is portfolio funding. It's got a lot gotten a lot of publicity, and that's where a funder can provide capital directly to a law firm uh, or or a corporation that can bundle together three or more cases into a portfolio. Uh, it spreads out risk for a funder, and so it allows us to give a better pricing model to the law firm or the client that has that portfolio. Uh, Defense-side funding is another area that I think is, is really the next big wave, uh, and that I think will will take off uh, and will involve really bundling together both plaintiff-side uh, plaintiff claims and defense-side claims if a large multinational conglomerate, for example, has the right mix of those sorts of claims uh, and their plaintiff side claims can be expected to throw off enough revenue, they can use that expected revenue to finance large discounts on their defense side docket. Uh, and then finally, um, I think the next place the market may go after that is, is syndication of claims. As, as the funding industry grows and as, as there are more claims that are funded out there, um, funders may look to syndicate their claims. Well, David, it's been a fantastic conversation so far, and we're, we're getting close to the end of, of our time. But to wrap this up, I'd like to engage in something that we call in closing. Basically, it's a series of questions that I ask to you in relative rapid fire, so far as my powers of articulation allow me to do so. And then you answer as, as fast as you can. It's kind of like word association, only a little bit more focused. So you, you ready? All right. I'm ready. I know you're a big New York guy. Uh, so let me ask, is, is, it, is it the Mets, the Yankees, or, or are, do you follow some club that's actually able to combine both talent and soul? That might have been a loaded question coming from a yes, Philly guy. Actually, it was. Where I actually yeah. spent seven years, but but that's an easy one for me. It's it's the Mets hands down. The Yankees are the yeah, umpire. Good for you. I love Mr. Met, except when he flipped people off last year. I had to get a new Mr. Met after that one. Actually, that might have been his <laughs> finest hours, Mr. Met. It depends on your perspective. What is the best thing about living in New York City? Really, I'd say the live music scene, and and also the fact that no matter the day or time or place in the city, there's always something exciting to do or to eat. It is the city that never sleeps, said Frank, and apparently he's still correct. All right, next question. You are in a fight for your life, and you can call for help from any superhero who has ever graced the cover of a comic book. Who do you yell for and why? I got to go with Superman. He's, he's the man of steel. He's an old classic, and he was the first superhero that ever sort of captured my, my heart. Good call. Old school. I like that. Uh, you'd mentioned the music scene in New York. Who or what is your favorite musician and or band of all time? This is the, the best and easiest question I've ever gotten. I've, I've often been called a fanatic with a PH because of my love and devotion for the band. And yet you still have a job. You shave and you go to work every day. 
Who, well, maybe you don't shave, it? but you still go to work every day. Okay. And I know some people who've just sort of gone completely off the grid with that. I, I, I don't listen to that music for the same reason I don't do, I don't know, opiates. I probably would never come home. Um, as a New Yorker, David, I know you, you probably don't want to concede that you ever eat any place that is not tragically hip. But when you are on the road and you have to eat at a chain restaurant with the rest of us you know, in, down to the proletariat, where do you go? I have to admit that Taco Bell is a guilty pleasure, and I, and I do also, it's not a fast food, but I do also pine for good old Philly cheesesteak oh, That, is, that is some some good grease right there. Taco Bell, is that the one where they actually have tacos made out of other proteins like meat and, and eggs? I, I tried not to look at it. That is an innovation. It. We've got to get those people on this program. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'd love to keep talking to you about this, but we're, we're at the end of our usable lifespan, so we're going to have to sign off. But I do appreciate you taking the time to help shed some light on the litigation funding industry, particularly from the commercial side, and the benefits that it offers, and, and some of the challenges that it presents to the kind of general counsel and outside counsel who tune into the show. So, for those of you who do tune into the show, thank you for doing so. Please be sure to join us the next time we speak to someone who is changing the face of the field in which we all work. Until then, I'm Craig Mills, Executive Shareholder at Buchanan, Ingersoll & Rooney. Thanks for listening.